second episode of Almost Legal Season. What is almost legal? Oh, <laughs> that's right. That's what we're calling this. Because now <laughs> we're 17. Can you imagine? What are we going to do for season 20? I'm like oh. now thinking ahead. What if for season 21 we didn't made, made all non-alcoholic cocktails? <laughs> <laughs> A dream. What if we did all men? All <laughs> men. Just really changed it up. I would never. That would not be fun. Do you remember when we thought about doing like April uh, Fool's yes, Day? April Fool's episode <laughs> where we did an episode about I, I would still do that like the I first week too. in April. Mm-hmm. There's so many that we've mentioned that I'd be like, wow, I'd really like to dive into that person. It won't be a normie though. It's not going to be like George Washington. Yeah. That'd be crazy. No. <laughs> um, I did see though. So you know the crazy guy on I-70 who puts up he like so yeah for yeah, everyone yeah. that doesn't live in maryland there's a guy on i-70 who well 70 bought... goes all the way across the country oh that's right <laughs> so i-70 in the maryland part right <laughs> and he bought a crane for himself and he parked it right next to the highway and he changes the billboard on it regularly to something absolutely psychotic and this one the one for this week is a picture of george washington and mm. it says real insurrectionists bring guns it's like, <laughs> wow. it's like are you I, I was like i can't tell the are tone of this promoting? one promoting are you what's happening are you saying like the people from january 6th like are not real insurrectionists because some of them did some of guns. them did definitely have guns <laughs> yeah like, i saw i've seen images i don't know but yeah wow he's throwing shade at the jan 6 crew i he's wild and i also can't believe that there's not like a reddit page like focused on him maybe he's maybe like, there is I don't maybe know. he's throwing shade at trump maybe. for being back in the election super pro-trump i a lot know of his but like things. now i don't know i don't Crazy. know it's very interesting i know I, weird <laughs> i always kind of look forward to seeing them because i'm like what because he has to, it has to cost so much money to what print all he, these posters what is he up to all next? these billboards i what don't know to next? <laughs> i'll be driving out there again next week so we'll I'll find out you know. we'll find out but that's not why we're here no we're not here to talk about toxic men <laughs> we're talking about famous women in history because this is history on the rock with katie and Allie. so as i said this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time and we are not historians that's so important anything (laughs) but but this is gonna be a fun episode this is our first fictional woman of the season Mm -hmm. we've got two like actressy actresses we're really most actressy actresses. i know we're hitting it hard (laughs) we're hitting it really really hard but you're busy yes dealing with your next door neighbor that puts crazy (laughs) signs up and is like lowering the value of your house daily because nobody wants to buy in your neighborhood anymore we're so sorry for you for that Um, (laughs) because of their chaotic billboards (laughs) but that means you're busy so you can't google what these women look like no so we're gonna describe them for you we're gonna get a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing (laughs) Miss Piggy, and you would not believe how perfect she is. So Miss Piggy is a voluptuous female pig with long, luscious blonde locks, purple eyeshadow, purplish blue eyeshadow, heavily mascarad lashes, blue eyes. She has a peachish skin tone, but when she's in a cartoon, sometimes it's colored light Pink. She is a fashion icon, often wearing pearls, leopard print, silk, feather boas, black leather, plunging necklines, el- <laughs> elbow neck 
length gloves and statement jewelry. And I want you to understand that I spent this week looking at images of Miss Piggy and I could not honestly stop. She is so beautiful and cute and sexy all at the same time. And I need to show you this image of her that I was like, oh my God, I think I'm a little bit turned on by Miss Piggy. Oh my gosh. Wowza. Wow. It is like the woman Jessie from The Parent Trap mixed with Marilyn, the evil woman from yeah. the parent trap I'm like, it's like if they had a baby <laughs> she is so stunning we're gonna have to post this picture she's wearing like her jean jacket off the shoulders with pink gloves and her hair is just in her face what's well, messy which is like not her normal thing no. like, like she's very like windswept and she has like a black lace like <laughs> Bodice. I, I love it. But she's wearing her signature pearl necklace, which of course mm-hmm. she has to wear because it covers up the seam, the puppetry seam <gasps> between her neck and her body. Function and beauty. I yeah. love it. <laughs> That's what everything I wear is for that. Function and beauty. Okay. Who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay. I am doing Joan Crawford. Woo! Joan has one of the most iconic looks in Hollywood. She has a long oval shaped face with extremely pronounced cheekbones that give her cheeks kind of like a hollow look. She has large eyes that can change dramatically based on her eye makeup or just whatever the fuck she wants to do with them for that scene. There, like I was looking, like you were saying, like I was looking at pictures of her all this week and I was like, she can either look so beautiful or so absolutely terrifying, <laughs> depending on what she is looking at or what yeah. she wants you to think she's looking at. Um, she had eyebrows that would become iconically high arched over time <laughs> and would always retain a darker tone, even if her hair was dyed blonde. She had full lips, a wide smile and curly hair that changed a lot over the years, considering she started off in the silent film era and worked until the 70s. I never pin her as that old. I could not. She made 18 silent films. Stop. So she was like in the meat of it. it. Oh, wowza. (laughs) Yeah. Like she was one of the ones like obviously we'll get into it. That was like. Are talking movies really going to be a thing? (laughs) Are the talkies actually going to (laughs) happen? But yeah. Can you believe that? No. Silent film to disco. That is her range. A dream. I can't believe it. Wow. All right. <laughs> so do you want to know what you're drinking for Miss Piggy? Miss Piggy, this drink was named by my daughter. Oh. Uh, and she named it And She Knows It. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is gin that was steeped for about a half an hour with a hibiscus cold brew tea bag. Mm-hmm. Um, rosé, a bubbly rosé. And then... Um, you just mix those in a champagne glass and then you add some raspberries into the glass and squirt some lemon juice in it with a lemon slice Ooh. before you drink it. Yes. This is going to be so bougie. Yes. Cheers. Mmm. Mm. I like that. So nice. Mm. Yeah, it's like floral. But not overwhelmingly so. Yeah, it had to be pink. It had to be bougie. Mm. It had to be tasty, you know. Well, it's also like, it's such an iconic pink because it's like 
like I was telling you in the kitchen, it's like the kind of color pink that's like the blush your mom has in the closet that you're like putting on when you're like too young. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like a very, like Miss Piggy is a very specific pink color. Yes. And I knew like hibiscus would help me get there. Yes. Like I, it had to happen that way. Mm-hmm. I also feel like she often has rouge cheeks. She, so. yeah. Her makeup is on point. <laughs> So why don't you tell me what you know about Miss Piggy and the mammoth research I had to do this week. I can't even imagine. Mammoth. Um, Yeah, this episode is going to be intense. One of our longest in a while. (laughs) So I know from Miss Piggy that she is kind of a prima donna. Sure. She is demanding, wants to be, like, I guess she is, like, a model. Um, She's very fashion forward. But she... Like, people, I think, label her as very materialistic, but I think that she also, like, I mean, she is in love with Kermit the Frog, the most so basic, in love. the most basic of all boys, mm-hmm. the best boy. Um, and I just think that that shows a lot about her character that, like, she's like, oh, yeah, this is the show I put on, but I'm deeply in love with this nerdy frog yeah well because she can buy all her shit for herself she's not materialistic because kermit has it it's because she has it yes (laughs) a very taylor swift travis kelsey situation sure (laughs) sure i think so Uh, she's not benevolent like Minnie mouse no, no no that's the thing i think she is a very like very open about like you know what people may perceive as her flaws and i kind of love that she's like yeah i am gonna demand what I want like right. I don't know but I also am going to race home to Kermit for Christmas in a snowstorm right <laughs> with, <laughs> on gonna, a dog sled I'm gonna finish my my, my photo shoot but <laughs> and then I'm gonna like Noah. go on the I did a rod to yeah. get home <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I speaking of the Travis or Kelsey thing I mm-hmm. saw a thing <laughs> some sports guy was like well he got a $70,000 bonus so I know why Taylor is chasing the street someone goes she is a set, billionaire. She is set to make four point one billion dollars from the Aeros tour. She is not dating Travis for his money. Not she, at it's all. It's almost like she could buy the Chiefs like ten times over. Right. Like nobody she could buy the Chiefs and fire him. Like that <laughs> that's would be the power move that she needs to do. Okay. Uh, so anyways. Same with Miss Piggy. Same. Yeah. So like same. good comparison. <laughs> Hello. You don't need that frog money. No. <laughs> Honey. So, Kermy. Um, I had so much fun this week. Mm. I looked at the National Museum of American History. There is a traveling Muppet exhibit that goes around, which is actually in DC um now. So you could go see it. I've heard it's amazing. Marjorie went, sister mm. went to see it and said it was great. Um, I obviously went on the Miss Piggy fandom page, which is where I found <laughs> that really sultry picture of Miss Piggy. And then there's a great guy who does a YouTube channel called Distory, which is like Disney's history. Mm-hmm. Um, and he covers several Muppet characters, especially since Disney obviously bought those characters. So mm-hmm. he does a really great job. And I just found stuff all over. People love Miss Piggy. Also, I really don't think that she is a fictional character because I got a lot of this information from her personal Facebook page and like her the personal books that she has written like she there is a Time Magazine article I read that just says by Miss Piggy like who the fuck wrote that was it Frank Oz it had to be Frank Oz yeah you know what's funny is I've heard that like if you go on the Muppets or like Sesame Street or something they're like do not ever acknowledge that they are Muppets never like always speak to them as if they are your co-stars your co-stars that's it perfect which i think is why everything they do it makes 
sense. I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's so believable. <laughs> You're like, God, I really do feel like Kermit is being, like, interviewed on this talk show right now. I, I like, mean, I think that Miss Piggy is actually, like, a human person. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, after this week, I'm sold. I'm sold on it. Okay. So, Miss Piggy is one of the central characters of the Muppet franchise. She is a force of nature who developed from a one-joke running gag to a three-dimensional character. She, of course, is seen as a prima donna who is absolutely convinced that she is destined for stardom and nothing will stand in her way. She gives off a public persona of soul feminine charm but can instantly fly into a rage if somebody has wrong her frank oz once said she wants everyone to treat her like a lady and if they don't she'll cut them in half <laughs> sorry are is she based off of joan crawford i think i think they're the same <laughs> or b arthur <laughs> yes she is a feminist icon a gay icon and is well loved by people around the world so let's get to know her a little bit better from her inception, she was a diva with beautiful makeup and hair and gowns. Peggy Lee was her original name, and she was first played by Jerry Nelson, sometimes played by Fran Brill, but most often by Frank Oz, although puppeted by Kevin Clash because Frank Oz was so busy. He had, like has a lot of endeavors, mm -hmm. so Kevin Clash would puppet Miss Piggy and Frank Oz would dub over later. Okay. But she was created by a woman, Bonnie Erickson. Mm. The creative department got notes from Jim, Jim Henson. He wanted three pigs, like three background pigs, who he just called the pigs. And his note on a piece of paper said, life-size, Piggy Lee, Hamilton Pig. She is delicate and lovely. He is a cigar epitome of grossness. <laughs> And that's what he wanted, so that's what he got. I also love Peggy Lee. Well. And I love that now Peggy Lee is the basis for Peg the Dog and Lady in the Tramp. I know. <laughs> and this, because, okay, Bonnie Erickson was from North Dakota, and her mom loved Peggy Lee. So she originally was Miss Piggy Lee as both a joke and an homage. And there's kind of two stories about this. One is um, Bonnie Erickson, who made Miss Piggy, is like, okay, now that Peggy Lee's stardom is about to grow, we don't want, you know, the Muppets to be connected with that or to hurt Peggy Lee's feelings. So let's just change it to Miss Piggy instead of Miss Piggy Lee. And the other is that Peggy Lee was not fond of the Muppets and threatened to sue. Wow. So okay. I read well, both of those things. I like that she's like <laughs> a slutty dog in a pound. Yes. <laughs> He's a, a tramp. <laughs> <laughs> and I love him. But am I a pig? Absolutely. No, sir. Swine? I am a dog. <laughs> Thank you very much. Man's best friend, Peggy Lee. Um, she was kind of an ensemble player because she would show up altered here and there, different eyes, a different body, different hair. They'd throw her together, put her in the background, depending on what like Jim needed for the sketch at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't necessarily realize this, that the original, the Muppets was like a, more of an adult sketch show. Oh, Not necessarily. I mean, it wasn't adult, like it was like mature. Right. Humor. But it, it was like. Yeah, it was, you know, like so, kind of like a Tonight Show where it's all these different sketches and yeah. they're reoccurring and there's different characters. The first time she appeared was in an episode or not the first time, but one of the early times she appeared was in an episode called Muppet Sex and Violence. 
Whoa. And that's in like 1975. So I like I like went into a Muppet loophole, which by the way, all like six seasons of the Muppet Show are now available on Disney Plus. It's like five or six seasons. Really? You can really dive deep all into right. this. I was in a rabbit hole <laughs> this week. <laughs> really gone. But she didn't really get her own personality until the Muppet Show. So she's like in all these background things that Jim Henson is like pushing his Muppets into, kind of like The Simpsons used to be a show on another show. Yeah, the Tracy Ullman show. Right. That's mm-hmm. how the Muppets were. Okay. So now they get their own show in 1976, and that's when Miss Piggy becomes a full character. So we get some information. She is a hand rod puppet. A hand rod puppet is performed by the performer's dominant hand goes into the puppet's head and operates the mouth and and sometimes the facial features like the eyes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the less dominant hand controls those like thin small rods that move their hands around. Originally, she was hand carved from foam, and then they skinned her face and body with fleece. And that's how all the pigs and, frankly, many Muppets were created early on. Um, But then when the Muppet moves and talks, the fleece, and you can see this on early episodes, the fleece, like, wrinkles and moves and looks like kind of mangy and grotesque it's like i've seen that with like kermit's mouth (gasps) yeah you can almost like see the hand when he's like grimacing or something yeah when he like pulls his jaw in and you're like oh (laughs) i hate the way that looks um so that's how she's looking like in these first couple of seasons and she was passed around by different puppeteers. But then there was a scene where she um, is being puppeted by Frank Oz and Kermit is being puppeted by Jim Henson. And the scene goes that Frank is supposed to slap Kermit across the face. Mm Miss Piggy is supposed to slap Kermit. And as he does that, he goes, hi! You know, (laughs) as Miss Piggy does. She does that all the time. And from then on, she became like a black belt in karate. (laughs) And (laughs) Frank Oz was the only person person who did miss piggy oh my gosh i love that but in the second season of the muppet show she skyrocketed to stardom so the first season she's just kind of getting her footing like maybe she's a counterpart with kermit sometimes um but she starts to get updated she gets a different snout she gets some bigger hair she gets some bigger eyes her ears get thicker her jewelry gets more elaborate um and the more famous she was the more cool her wardrobe got Mm. because she is one of the very few female muppets Mm -hmm. there are female muppets but she is like the only star you know Mm -hmm. um bonnie erickson said that she was first part of this entourage but very quickly jim was like hey i need a female for this scene i need a female for this scene i need somebody sexy for this scene i need somebody for this sketch so bonnie was just like i'm gonna go in this drawer i whipped up some purple silk gloves i put these big eyes where these little beady black ones used to be Mm -hmm. and that was really it for a while She was a normal character still on a couple sketches. There are two in particular that she was on regularly. The uh, Veterinarian's Hospital, where she played Nurse Piggy, and then Space Pigs, where she was first mate Piggy, like helping drive the spaceship. But then they needed somebody to, like, host the guest stars. So who were they going to place next to Elton John when he's coming on to The Muppet Show? But Miss Piggy, you know? It can't be Gonzo. <laughs> no, Fozzie the Bear? No way. No way. Well, because I also feel like 
there's a sense to Miss Piggy that like she's gonna say what comes to her mind. Oh yeah, and you Frank know? Oz is she's gonna, do gonna it. go there. <laughs> Frank and Miss Piggy are going to mm-hmm. go there. <laughs> Absolutely. So her development went off from being that one note gag, and she kind of became the host. Uh, and Frank Oz said that Fozzie is two dimensional. Somebody like Animal is zero dimensional. Yeah. And Miss Piggy is one of the few Muppets that has been fully embodied as a character. So let's talk about her backstory a little bit. Okay. Like what's developed as far as her name. She has told guest stars that her name is Pigathus, which is Greek for river of passion. But also, obviously, her name was Piggy Lee. At one point, she told somebody it was Miss Pigatha Lee. And then at one point, she told somebody her first name is Miss. <laughs> she was like, my name is Miss Piggy. According to one of Miss Piggy's books, her birthday is June 14th. Okay. Um, no year is stated. And her Facebook page actually says it's none of your beeswax. <laughs> what year she was born? She was born above a becker's butcher shop in a small town her father chased after one of the other sows and her mother had so many piglets that she never found time to develop her own mind and miss piggy said i'll die before i live like that so she screamed and ran away to the big city in terms of family members, she's also been known to have a dog named fufu two dim-witted nephews andy and randy pig and a six-year-old niece But life was hard for her in the big city. People got all the jobs and pigs could only take what was left. So to keep going, she would walk a sandwich board for barbecue stand. (laughs) I've tried so hard to take this seriously. I'm just like, I'm imagining like the, (laughs) the like lifetime movie about this, you know, and her giving an interview and it's fading in from the background. (laughs) I wore a sandwich board. For a barbecue joint. It had bacon on it. Can you imagine? <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, she's walking the sandwich board. I love that. For a barbecue because she she can't get a job. I mean, it's the big city. Madonna lived in an empty synagogue. So, yeah. like, do what you got to do. She is the Madonna pig, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> this led to her being a mascot for a TV sportscast station where she was the head of pigskin parade. Uh, And that is when she got hired on the Muppet show. (laughs) Uh, Commentary on the Muppet show leads us to believe that her father died when she was young and her mother wasn't very nice to her, that she left home as a teenager to go to the big city. uh, And after graduating from charm school, of course, and uh, she decided after doing the sandwich board thing to work in a department store selling gloves, which she's great at modeling gloves. And um, she was at one point. Nothing looks better in a glove than a hoof. (laughs) I've never in my life. Pictured what if her hands were just hooved? Oh my. Oh my. Wow. I really like her fingers. Let's keep yeah, them there. Sorry. We, to be clear, she does have fingers. She has fingers, <laughs> but it would be great if they were hooves. 
Uh, she was forced, though, forced to pose for ads and for bacon products, and that was really upsetting for her. Um, but then she started to enter beauty pageants to survive because, like, who's got it except for Miss mm-hmm. Piggy? Mm-hmm. When she was asked about this in an interview, what it was like to grow up on a farm, she said, quote, very humbling. I don't like being humble, so I got out fast. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Piggy hates humility. After winning one of these beauty pageants, uh, she began to succeed in Hollywood. Jim Henson remarked on Miss Piggy's fame, saying she quickly became everyone's favorite Muppet. We would anticipate coming up with new personalities, which would be much the same appeal as Kermit or Fonzie or Gonzo. We will not create anybody with Miss Piggy's kind of appeal, and nobody should try. (laughs) Now, to become a legend, you need a couple things. First, you need a good concept, a good designer, a good performer, but then you need a client, and the client has to treat that character thoughtful and use the character well. And that's what Jim did with the Muppets, and it's what Disney has continued to do with Miss Piggy. The late 70s were crazy for her. She started writing books, being invited to guest star on shows. She um, exploded as a cultural icon, became a fashion diva, and kind of became a parody for the fashion diva market. Uh Like, whatever was popular at the time, she was definitely wearing. And her Facebook page does say that she was educated in fashion at a university in Paris. So just so you know, she she was at the Sorbacon. (laughs) (laughs) 10 points to Katie. I'm holding up a sign. 10 points. (laughs) This is unreal. I am, I've never had more fun. I know. I'm having a blast. <laughs> this is great. These are going to take a dark turn when I take the mic. <laughs> well, good. Everybody take a break in between. The first uh, Muppet movie came out in 1979, and she got a true makeover. So instead of the fleece over the hand-carved foam, they had these, like, latex forms that they were using called thrown latex foam. And instead of, like, carving it, it had a more finished look. Mm. And then they used this unique called flocking, which is what they still use today. And it is these hypercharged fibers, like very small little, like, stuffed animal fibers that they shoot onto the latex, like, really fast. It's like like a gun onto it and then it looks like peach fuzz like a natural peach fuzz and that's why she has the look that she has very soft almost like it's real skin or fur on an animal right i was gonna say because you can't make them took you can't make the muppets look too plasticky because there is that like fuzzy element that makes them what they are right right so they made her and like they use this on tons of muppets now like anyone that's not like you know like cookie monster has like all the fur you know you need the fur but anyone that has is supposed to have like a skin like face like pigs would have this like microfiber that makes them soft yeah So halfway through season three of the Muppets, they're like, let's take the Miss Piggy from the movie, Mm -hmm. that mold, and use her in the Muppet show. So they do, and this is where we finally settle on the Miss Piggy silhouette that we have today. Um, And the Muppet movie really refined them, all the Muppets, and their backstories for the show. So now the show has a more polished look. Mm -hmm. The Great Muppet Caper came out in 1981, and... um, 
This refines her look even more. Her hair gets better. Her ears kind of change. Her outfits change. And in this movie, she does actually swim and ride motorcycles. So let's also talk about all of the talent that Miss Piggy has. She considers herself, obviously, as a dramatic actress and a great singer. But she's also been known to play a few instruments, namely the kazoo and the trumpet. <laughs> namely the kazoo. <laughs> namely the kazoo. She can bend metal bars like to break out of prison. She has modeled, obviously, before the Iditarod. <laughs> she can tap dance. She can swim. She can drive trucks. She can ride motorcycles. And no one can make an entrance quite like her. That and- is some pig. <laughs> wow, Charlotte. Calm <laughs> down. Calm down. <laughs> down in 1984 Muppets Take Manhattan comes out and Miss Piggy gets mugged in Central Park and then she chases down the mugger in roller skates but I don't think they had the ability to do this so they like put somebody in a full (laughs) Miss Piggy outfit and it is terrifying there's this huge pig with this round head on roller skates, like going after this mugger, and it is, it is literally horrible to watch. And from that is where we get Muppet Show went on tour live, and they're all in these terrible, terrifying outfits for three years, Katie. It's like no. Disney on ice, but like Muppets. Muppets. It's bad. It's really bad. I hate that. I hate that almost as much as when the Today Show dressed up as the Peanuts characters. Yeah. (laughs) Which I will bring up any chance I get because it's the worst thing ever. Well, that's how they, like, were in that live-action movie. And it was, like, so scary. I hate it. Yeah. But it's why the Muppets ended up developing the Muppet Babies. Because the way to make the live show work is kind of, like, to round them out and Mm -hmm. make them, like, Mm -hmm. like Teletubbies, you know, a little Mm -hmm. bit, round them out. Mm -hmm. And they had shown them as babies in the previous movie in a flashback. And nothing is cuter than Miss Piggy in Muppet Babies with all her sass. She's like Sarah from Land Before Time, the Triceratops. So much attitude. So cute in her little bloomers under her dress i think she is adorable and the 1990s really capitalized on the muppets and the muppet babies there is this one about the transcontinental railroad (laughs) that i will never get over so the muppets split in split into two groups and they are trying to teach us this history lesson of course but they are both building a railroad from the east coast and the west coast to the middle of the country and it is dynamic and this is your Roman Empire. I, it's my <laughs> so I think about the Muppet Babies Transcontinental Railroad episode regularly. Sister knows what I'm talking about. I gotta about. get in on it. I gotta get in I, on it. I'm gonna have to send it to you. I, we had it on VHS or we taped it off a of TV or something, so I watched it all the time and it is so good. Nothing is better than something taped off a of VHS at your parents' house. I know. Nothing is better. Mm. It's true. So then. Disney obviously gets in cahoots. They're like, we like these babies as well. Why don't you come to our theme park, perform this baby routine? (laughs) And they're like, okay. And they have Miss Piggy doing like full Broadway glam numbers in Disney parks. They got it. Perfect. And then the 90s really update her look. Miss Piggy like goes on this National Wildlife Preserve PSA. And this is the first time we see her with short hair. It's a bob Mm -hmm. and bangs. And everybody's like, what? 
the hell? And then Miss Biggie just keeps transforming to whatever we need her for. In 92, she's in A Christmas Carol. In 96, she's in Treasure Island. In 99, she's in Muppets from Space. Then, when the Muppets decide to do Wizard of Oz, she plays every single witch in Wizard of Oz. All of them, from Glinda to the West to the East, she's got it. And this is the first time we see her with black hair. And then, that same year, she takes the red carpet with brown hair. Miss Piggy dyed her hair, y'all. Wow, very SJP in the first Sex and City movie. And of everybody's her. like, oh my gosh, but she looks great. She of looks great. She does. I mean, she was doing the 90s thing where everybody went dark because they wanted to be like East Coast girl. Yeah, they wanted you know? to be Alanis Morissette. Right. Everybody's done with, you know, West Coast blondes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they went right back to it in the early 2000s. Sure did. <laughs> and they put on shiny eyeshadow yeah. too and very low cut jeans. <laughs> In the 2010s, we obviously have the Muppet movie and Muppets Most Wanted, and she's in volunteer campaigns. And if you, like, did something with the Muppets, you could go to, like, for this volunteer campaign, you would have a free day at Disney Park. Like, they're really intertwined. All in all, Miss Piggy has starred in eight, all eight, theatrical releases of the Muppets. She's starred in every single one and both made for tv movies she also starred in two television specials the fantastic miss piggy show and miss piggy's hollywood she's made her presence known in other ways as well quickly her career expanded to television specials home videos records and books her how-to volume of advice on absolutely everything miss piggy's guide to life became a national bestseller and her fabulous face has been featured on the cover of countless magazines actually too many to name I had to like stop typing them. And she's also starting her own workout video. And she wrote a book called The Diva Code, which she describes as a selfish help book. <laughs> more Miss Piggy. <laughs> That's what I'm taking away from this episode. More, more, more. more. We want more. A selfish help book. I love that. A guide to she life. She is such an entrepreneur. I, like, can't get over it. She's perfect. Oh, God. But one reason we love her so much is her love story with Kermit, yeah. as you brought from the beginning <laughs> of the show. In an article titled, What Kermit and Piggy Taught Us About Yin and Yang, Piggy and Kermit really broke stereotypes for their time in the 70s and 80s where the female character took more of the yang, the fierce masculine energy, and the male character took on the yin, the warm, receptive, inviting feminine energy. And their dynamic actually mirrored the trend of what was happening in women in the background of this country. Women were taking their face in work. They were finding their voice. They were finding their voices in relationship. And at the same time, men were learning to embrace embrace and explore the emotional world and like the domestic field and like spending time with their kids i did not know that that was the meaning behind the yin and the yang oh yeah <laughs> I, I had the no opposite, idea. opposites in nature well and i love too that like you know there's that like little dot that's like you still have some of the other one yeah. like you know obviously because everybody does yeah thing but like i didn't know that it was like a feminine masculine like energy like mm-hmm. that's so interesting and i love when couples get to like throw that you know into a new kind of balance and a new definition of what that means i love that and i mean you're right that is what miss piggy and kermit did and millennials grew up on that yeah you know we grew up with kermit singing these really emotional songs and spending time with his nephew and miss piggy like doing karate and like (laughs) 
being awesome. I can't be at family Christmas. I have a photo shoot. I'm working. <laughs> yeah. Like it was very interesting for everybody to see that we grew up on that, which is kind of why our personalities are the way they That's, are. I believe it. Well, and also not to bring this up again, but like I always found it so important that like, yes, Miss Piggy loved her job. Yes, she was going to do the photo shoot and she, but she also like, wanted to come home to Kermit and was going to do everything she possibly could to accomplish that because I think that some people think that like women who are career focused don't give a shit about their family and Miss Piggy's like no I love this man I am I care about him and my job like I can have both and I'm going to put equal effort into both and I just love that and it's so true for her because she does represent this fierce independence, take no prisoners attitude. Mm-hmm. But she is a strong woman who wants to be loved and cared for. Yes. She's giving him like little nicknames and cuddling up to him and being like, don't you want to buy me flowers? Like, Kermie, Kermie. She's at <laughs> the frog of her life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that the yin and the yang with Miss Piggy and Kermit represent to us like or appeal to us because they could clash Mm -hmm. and yet they're still attracted to each other and they take endless attempts at their relationship that sometimes don't work but it makes them more creative and extraordinary together like where would Kermit be without this boisterous star like Miss Piggy because he's supposed to be in charge of the Muppet show you know like it's his show and she's the star and where would she be without somebody grounded like Kermit like Mm -hmm. they are such they highlight each other and also in recent years there's been a lot of focus on being an introvert and an extrovert and why each one is important and how they recharge and Miss Piggy and Kermit show that wonderfully (sighs) wonderfully I love that. You know, and I was thinking too about Miss Piggy in the Muppet Christmas Carol and that like Kermit is being treated like shit and like she's like, I'm going to let you deal with it, but I'm also not going to hold my fucking tongue. Right. And I am going to say something because I think it's messed up. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and like I love that energy from her where she's like, I am going to stick up for you, but I'm also not going to like step on your toes. Right. Like, yeah, I don't know. I just think they have a timeless relationship and well, I love it it's like when your friend tells you something or like that they had a fight with their partner and you're just like fuck that guy yeah like she Miss Piggy like immediately gets Get on, on your, your level. level exactly mm-hmm. over the years their relationship has changed actually in the little blue box on the side on Wikipedia it says Kermit on again off again relationship <laughs> they officially broke up in 2010 and then again in 2015 but they both released public statements on social media about breaking up but in the most recent Muppets movie there's a flash forward where they're like aged puppets with wrinkles and it's so cute and they're together like sitting on this bench in cardigans (laughs) and like she has three strings of pearls instead of one it's so nice um because you know where would Miss Piggy be without her counterpart they're so cute together now (laughs) In terms of being a gay icon, Miss Piggy says that she, in 2014, when people said, are you a gay icon? She said, I will be an icon to anyone who will take me. Oh. <laughs> uh, and after the Muppets paired with Disney early on, we know that Disney is, you know, recorded for their gay activism. 
And um, the Muppets followed that train along with Disney. There was a big kerfuffle a couple years ago with Chick-fil-A where there was this story online that Kermit was supposed to do a thing with Chick-fil-A. And then the Kermit said no. And there were all these signs that were like, Kermit doesn't eat Chick-fil-A and all this bullshit. And the Muppets... It didn't actually happen. Like, they weren't supposed to do anything with Chick-fil-A. Oh, it was just a story. Like, or somebody got like somebody Something yeah, happened. Yeah. There was some sort of misunderstanding. But the Muppets certainly didn't go out and say anything about it. They just let the story unfold because they didn't care. And Michael Shulman, a writer on The New Yorker, said that Miss Quote, Miss Piggy in particular is my first gay icon. She was over the top. She had an exaggerated drag queen quality to her. I think she had a lot of qualities that gay men tend to love. And many have gone on to say, yes, Miss Piggy is absolutely a gay icon because of her old-fashioned drag queen vibes. But also, she's a feminist icon because she's mixed with the 1970s feminist vibe. Miss Piggy is considered a feminist icon for all the reasons I stated above, but also because she's unapologetically herself, which is what we ask of women right now. She's big and bold and loud and girly and passionate and powerful and does not put other people or women down ever. She loves herself. She celebrates her body, her personality, her independence. Miss Piggy even released a Time magazine article written by herself called Why I Am a Feminist Pig, <laughs> in which she states, quote, I believe that any woman who refuses to accept society's preconceived notions of who and what they can be is a feminist. I believe any woman who is willing to struggle, strive, and if necessary, learn karate to make their mark in the world is a feminist. And yes, I believe that any woman who cares about her appearance, her star billing, and especially her percentage of the gross is a feminist three cheers for miss b <laughs> i'm like getting teary she's amazing right because that's the other like it factor of like i feel like she also taught us when we we're young that like it's also okay to care if you feel pretty or not yeah and i think that that is like well she came you know, out pretty is subjective it's whatever you feel like it is but like you feeling beautiful in yourself is also like it's a big part of like your life like well, also miss piggy is big yeah right like she's a voluptuous I would say she's the first plus size model yeah she is a curvy curvy woman yeah. and she is wearing skin tight mm -hmm. clothes with like i said plunging necklines <laughs> i just like i think that she took third wave feminism and really molded it, yeah. right? Like it molded it into the feminism that we see as millennials where it's like, it's okay. If you want to get fake tits, do it. Yeah. If you want to mm -hmm. get Botox, do it. If you don't, also fine. Yeah. Like we don't care. Yeah. Just like be happy amongst yourself. And like I know there's a whole bunch of like actually academic things wrong with everything I just said. <laughs> but I also like Miss Piggy didn't care about the academics. Yeah. She just showed up. When I feel like Miss Piggy actually cares about the person behind every you know yeah I don't know I just I feel like Miss Piggy I'm this is so dumb but like I feel like Miss Piggy cares about me 
Like, no matter what I decide to do. Well, and even though, like, men puppeted her and voiced her, it was Bonnie who made that body, who, like, dressed her, who put Mm -hmm. clothes on her. She, like, was making the person that Mm -hmm. Jim wanted, and she made her, and she was a pig, and she was great, and she's Miz. So... I also love that that they've never married. No, as far as no, I can tell. No, 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 no. They don't do that. Ms. Cartoons Pitty. don't grow old. We know Lisa's still eight. Um, <laughs> she's appeared on the Oscars three times. She's guest starred with Dolly Parton. She has sang with the Jonas Brothers, the Cheetah Girls, and who she lovingly calls Zachy Efron. <laughs> she's been on SNL, The Tonight Show, The Disney Channel, X Factor, and there was a whole challenge with her on Project Runway All-Star. TV Guide ranked her 23rd of the 50 greatest TV stars. Yeah. And she was 29th on the list of 100 greatest TV characters in 2015. She was honored by the Brooklyn Museum Center for Feminist Art for her achievements and contributions to breaking gender roles. And that's Miss Piggy. I love her so much. I fell apart with research this week it was so fun yeah she's so fun she is so i want like a miss piggy tattoo if that wasn't cliche i I mean i won't do it but i would love to that's like getting a tinkerbell tattoo you know you know what i feel like would be a really nice no offense if you have a tinkerbell tattoo if you were to get like kind of like a silhouettish style where it's like feather boa the nose and the ears but nothing else you know what i'm saying somebody do it. a hint of miss piggy (laughs) a hint just a little hibiscus tea bag of Miss Piggy. <laughs> no, I just I had so much fun this week, and I like I have a new appreciation for like art that transformed like from the seventies to the present. Yeah, like there's a lot of people who did a lot of work mm-hmm. in like women's lib without like you don't think about Miss Piggy as a feminist, but she is. Yeah, like she that's totally clearly is. what she is. Yeah, um, and that's really fun. <laughs> I had so much fun. I can't. I just can't stop smiling. Like a lot of weeks, I'm like, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I like I could do this for a whole nother three weeks. Perfect, and I would still have fun. All right. Well, let's get into human trafficking with Joan Crawford right after the break. Cool. (laughs) Why would you pick them out? Mugs are not a showpiece. Not a showpiece. Now... I know that there are people with, like, mug collections. And, like, I love my mug. There are mugs that are broken that I won't get rid of that I actually took up to the solarium and I plant plants in. Yes. I'm a big fan of mug. I, like, I would say I maybe collect mugs. but I, I love a mug. Them, I collect them to enjoy in the mornings because there is so little joy in everyday life. And mm-hmm. drinking out of a beautiful mug first thing in the morning that is a thing of joy to me. Well, it's one of the I things. Love it. The last time I was at an Airbnb, I posted a picture of the mug I was drinking out of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the most fun things about going to an Airbnb yeah. is like your morning kind of coffee is in a different type of mug. And it doesn't a even thrill. it doesn't even matter if it's a plain mug. It's like, is it thick ceramic? Is it skinny ceramic? Yeah. Is it small? Is it large? Like, I think it's so fun. Do we think that this is a Patreon topic? What glassware is your favorite? Shit. <laughs> I, c- I could talk no to you. No one, this is not a very tempting one like last week was. I but could talk to you for hours about mugs. I could too. All right. 
hours. Maybe we'll talk about it hours. on Patreon. <laughs> For as little as a dollar a month, you can listen to us talk about mugs. Um, whoa. Anyways. Whoa. <laughs> We're back. Hard hitting. Part two. Okay. Joan Crawford. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? <laughs> Taylor, thank you. Do you want to know what you're about to drink? I do. My gosh. Okay. Your your citrus <laughs> wedge is bigger than my it's citrus so wedge. So this is called Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest. Did your daughter name it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I did of my own sound body and accord. <laughs> so this is red wine. Mm. Silver rum. That's my favorite red wine. Not silver <laughs> rum. <laughs> Grapefruit juice. Mm-hmm. And honey. And then you shake it all up and you top it with tonic water. Ooh. Cheers. Cheers. Look at this. Nice. Mm. Very smooth. I was going to say the, the wine softens it so I much. I love red wine so much. Mm. I love it so much. So. Obviously, I did dry-ish January because yeah. I drank during the podcast, but I did not drink any red wine during January mm. whatsoever. And um, I'm not drinking it, like, during weeks and stuff. So it's, like, because that is my, like, if I get too drunk on red wine, like, I start crying and oh, throwing yeah. things and, mm-hmm. like, going crazy. The tannins make you emotional. But I also love it the best. So, mm-hmm. like, thank you for the string. You're welcome. My gosh. I hope I get <laughs> wild later. So what do you know about Joan Crawford? Okay, so Joan Crawford is like a big-time Hollywood actress. Mm-hmm. She's like a very important Hollywood actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been in a lot of roles, and obviously you said, like, from the silent movie film, so she spanned a big era. I feel like she was married to a lot of people. I feel like she um, adopted a lot of kids, mm-hmm. uh, and there was something there. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember, but I think there's something there. And... um. I, I don't know anything about this sex trafficking that you were talking about. Maybe that's connected to the kids. That's upsetting. Um, and I, she has a, I mean, a lot of clothes. She's like the Hollywood actress. She really, like a real like sneaker when you're talking about like classic Hollywood women. Golden like, Hollywood. I feel like a lot of people go straight to like Marilyn Monroe. Oh, and like, yeah. yes, she is. But like. Joan, like I was watching a lot of clips of Joan Crawford movies, and I was like, "My God, she is compelling on screen!" Mm. Like, because she went from again this silent film era when like you could not use your voice to like make your point come across in a scene, and I think that really helped. Like, she used her eyes like a painter would use a brush, in my mind. So. I'm excited to get into this story because it is a doozy. (laughs) (laughs) So I got a lot of this from the Meet Your Heroes podcast and the A&E biography. A&E biography went too light on the controversies surrounding Joan. Mm, As they would. I think Meet Your Heroes went a little too hard with the controversies surrounding Joan. So is our podcast going to spread the butter down the middle? spread right in the middle. Love it. We are the cream cheese in the middle of the bagel. Good. I am going to talk about all the accusations and also throw some doubt, maybe. So we're going to get into it. And I also use Wikipedia. <laughs> as Duh. <we> do. Duh. <laughs> so. I actually read Wikipedia this week and I said, I'm not going to start here. Look at you. Because it was too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's a lot. I was like, this is all out of order <laughs> and crazy. Lucille. Faye Lesseur was born 
on March 23rd, nineteen <gasps> oh question mark. Whoa! <laughs> Bitch, give me that number! Her birth certificate has never been found, so we will never truly know. But she later claimed it was 1908, but it was most likely between 1904 and 1905. I've also seen 1906. So we really don't know, but it's somewhere between four and eight. <laughs> when you're that old, who cares? who cares? Give us a number. Come on. So she's born in San Antonio, Texas. She was the third and youngest child uh, of Thomas E. Lesseur and Annabelle Johnson. And her father bailed on her when she was just 10 months old. Whoa. So I also, I, I've heard that one of the siblings was from her mother's first marriage. So I think this might have even been her second husband. Okay. So, because I was like, why would he have two full children? That I don't know. But also, like, men do crazy things. So anyways. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Shocking. So he left Anna, who was about 20 years 20 years old, maybe younger, and she is raising Joan, her sister Daisy, and her brother Hal all by herself. She worked as a laundress, but soon she found a new husband, Henry J. Casson. This would be her, again, I, th I think third marriage. So, again, I, one of these siblings was, must have been from her first, because like some records say it was her second, but everybody was like, no, it was her third. So, anyways. Henry ran the local opera house, so Joan got to see a lot of the big acts of the day. She was fascinated by the talent that came through the theater, and she idolized the beautiful women of the vaudeville circuit. They were poor, but Joan always had lofty dreams of getting out of poverty and pursuing a career in show business, preferably as a dancer. But her parents wanted her to have a more diverse education other than dancing, so they put her in piano lessons. Ew. Well, one day, in, a t in an attempt to escape piano lessons, she leapt from the front porch of her home, cut her foot on a broken milk bottle, and this was no ordinary cut. She had three surgeries to repair the damage, and for 18 months, she was unable to attend elementary school or continue dance lessons. Whoa! Hold on. I know. Did she cut her Achilles she tendon? She must have fucked her foot up beyond belief. Unreal. Like, because oh, I've seen some pretty bad foot injuries. Yeah. And, like, to 18 months. Okay, also, this is, like, 1912. You know, this is, like, a shitty time period, question yeah. mark. We don't know, but. Wow. They yeah. don't know. Do they not know how to repair tendons? Like, what? I mean, she still. And she goes on to be a dancer. So, like, yeah. they, like, they did, they, they did something. They did something. There's you know? a, I mean, there are a lot of three bone, surgeries. Bones and skin, muscles. No. 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 So anyway. I've had one. <laughs> <laughs> Total. So Joan is growing up. Life is fairly normal. But when she is 11 years old, her stepfather starts to sexually abuse her. Joan goes to her brother. She's like, I can't believe our dad is doing this. And he was like, Oh, you should probably know, like, he's not your biological father. Joan was so young when her first dad left, but, like, she just grew up with him and didn't know that he was not her biological father. So now she's really <laughs> reeling from this information. She's like, I thought it was my dad. Now he's not, and he's doing this. So then she goes to her mother, and she tells her about this, and she does not have a great reaction like a lot of mothers did during this time. She accuses Joan of seducing her husband and sends her off to boarding school. At least she got out of the situation. At least she got out of the situation. 
And this feeling of guilt and responsibility stuck with her for the rest of her life. Even when she was adult, she was like, yeah, but it was it was pretty consensual. Which, to be clear, it never is between an adult and a child. No, never. Never. So that's upsetting. So in June 1917, Henry Casson is accused of embezzlement, um, you know, with what's the finances of his theater. So he was blacklisted in their small town. Um, and it's not the abuse that made Anna rethink her marriage. Uh, it's this situation. So they divorce and she moves the family to Kansas City, Missouri. After the move, Joan is sent to St. Agnes Academy in Kansas City. So it's another boarding school because her mom is like, you're too wild for me. You're seducing men. Wow. Mainly my husband. You, te- you teenage girl with hormones. You psycho. You psycho. But since they were back to a single mom income, she remained at school as a work student. So this meant she spent really more time working than studying. She was cooking and cleaning the for the other students. And I want to be clear that this is not like a normal I don't know. I don't even know what this is normal. But like this is early 1900s. So she is basically a scullery maid in her own school and she is being psychologically and physically abused by the staff and her classmates because her classmates clearly know the difference between her and them. So she is bullied by the staff and the students because everyone knows that she shouldn't be there. Mm. And it really it's just it's the whole thing is just like a nightmare. Um but all the while she's keeping her dream alive of becoming a dancer. And somehow in her sliver of free time from studying and working at her school, she would travel around to local dance competitions in Kansas City and she would most often walk away with the trophy. So she thankfully got out of that first school and later attended Rockingham Academy. Um, She was a working student here and she was there with a scholarship and it was a little bit better. But by this time, Joan was done with school and she had developed a habit of just skipping school and going out dancing because she was like, I'm literally making money going to these competitions. (laughs) Like, this is how I'm going to make a living and make my way in this world it's why i understand how so many people don't want to graduate high school oh and they're just like i'm literally drowning in my yeah. family situation yeah. like why would i keep going for this piece of paper exactly it's like the the forethought the forethought doesn't exist as a teenager to handle that oh yeah and frankly not. we haven't handled it as a nation no excuse yeah. us well and it's like she is on a like self-survival mission right now sure she's like me surviving as an independent person is not going like this diploma is not going to make or break me (laughs) so she drops out of school to pursue dancing full-time and she moves to chicago she immediately gets a job in a nightclub and she's there for a bit And then she begins dancing in the choruses of traveling reviews. And then she spotted dancing in Detroit by producer Jacob Schubert. Schubert puts her in the chorus line for his 1924 show, Innocent Eyes, at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway in New York City. And while appearing in this uh, show, she meets a saxophone player named James Welton. 
The two were allegedly married in 1924 and lived together for several months. But she never talks about this marriage, and some consider it like not existent. Null and so, void. This yeah. is null and void. This is a very quick romance, but what you need to know about this time period is that Joan is hustling. She is dancing, but she is not satisfied. She wants to make her way to the top. She wants additional work. She wants to take her career to the next step. So she approaches Lowe's theater publicist, Nils Grandland, and he arranges for her to do a screen test, which then he sends to producer Harry Rapp in Hollywood. And then she gets word that MGM is offering her a contract, $75 a week. Shit. I know. That's a lot. But she had to come out to L.A. and she had to buy her way there. So she borrows $400 from her mom, and she is off to Hollywood. Good on her mom, though. I know. Cool. Yeah. Super cool. Because her mom is not super cool, the other parts of the story. (laughs) To give her $400 to, like, chase her dreams is great. So she gets to California. Mm -hmm. She gets off the train. Someone asks, are you Lucille Lesseur? And she said, yes. And she goes, that's funny. Harry usually picks the tall, glamorous woman. Whoa, throwing shade right off the train? Not the best way for Tinseltown to greet her, but (laughs) Joan's tough. She gets to MGM and was put through Starlet Boot Camp. So MGM had a reputation for Mm -hmm. taking young, promising talent, and they taught them how to sing, dance, act, ride a horse, even fence. So Joan is learning all of these skills. And the singing in, you know, singing is ironic because there was no sound in these films. But there she is. And it's exciting. And she starts off, like most people, just as background or a chorus person. I mean, if you look in the background of many of the films during the late silent film era, there's Joan. (laughs) But after a while, this gets her. And she's like, wow, MGM is not realizing how talented I am. (laughs) And I'm not getting any younger, so they are wasting my youth. Own yourself, girl. Own yourself. So she starts to campaign for herself. She puts herself in front of the big men in charge. And they do start to notice her more. Which one's the one we don't like? The second M is like the molester? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, one of them. One of of the M's. I think Meyer. He's been in the story a lot. Yeah, he's been in the stories a lot. And we're Mm -hmm. just like, oh. Yeah. So one of the guys is like, look at this star right under our nose. But that name, ugh, that name has got to go. It sounds like you're saying a sewer. So MGM has this great idea. They go, we'll have a public contest. Name the starlet. <gasps> ew, ew, ew. I hate that. Basically like something like the zoo would do to a baby elephant. But it's Joan fucking Crawford. (laughs) Is that what they picked? And they said, if we pick your name, you'll get $1,000. So there's also like a cash incentive to win this contest. My God. They put it out there. They get a ton of responses. But their favorite is Joan Arden. But another actress already has that name. And she threatens to sue MGM if they... Name Joan. (laughs) So they kept the Joan and they picked Crawford instead for the last name. And she fucking hated it. 
She wanted a two-syllable first name and thought that Crawford sounded like crawfish. She tried to get them to at least change the first name to Joanne, but it didn't work. (laughs) So Joan is born, and they do start giving her bigger roles in movies and touting her as the new bombshell, but she still isn't satisfied. She doesn't want to be the cute side thing in the movie. She doesn't want to be the secretary anymore. She wants to be the lead. As usual, Joan realizes this is going to be all up to her. So even after long days at the studio, she goes to every single event where she knows producers and directors will be at. So she schmoozes and seduces her ass off. MGM screenwriter Frederica Sigourmas realize or not realized recalled no one decided to make Joan Crawford a star Joan Crawford became a star because Joan Crawford decided to become a star <laughs> okay baby but I mean also I I think her name is so classic but maybe I was raised off of her name so like I feel like it's classic Hollywood I maybe if somebody was like, okay, Alexandra, your name is Joan now, mm-hmm. I would be like, what the fuck? Well, especially because like Lucille is such a classic name and, and then beautiful. To go from Lucille to, to Joan. Joan. No offense to Joan. No, but Jones like- is a great Joan is a great name, but like if you go from like this multi-syllabic, yeah, like a very French, right? Lucille yeah. is a very Lucille sore. Like she yeah. was like, I'm a French actress, and they're like. No, you're not. You're Joan from Louisiana. Actually, (laughs) you're Joan Crawford. (laughs) She's like, excuse me. I just never, because like most people who change their name for Hollywood, like are a part of the process. I didn't realize that she was not a part of the process at all. I can't believe they voted on (laughs) it. It was a public contest. That blows my (laughs) mind. It blows my mind. That's the funnest thing I've heard like today. Mm. A dream. So she's making her way up. Joan is a fucking hustler. But there's I'm still... a hustler. I'm a, I'm, I'm a hustler, baby. Exactly. <laughs> but there's still one hurdle to get over. There's one girl at the studio mm. who seems to be getting all of the good roles. Norma Shearer. And Joan is always cast as her sidekick. So she's the Judy Greer to her Jennifer Gardner. Oh, my God. Judy Greer. A dream. A gem. If you haven't guessed it yet from this story, her general reputation is that she's very competitive <laughs> and she often manifests it against other women. And I think that this is because like she's doing everything in her power to boost her career, but what is out of control in this situation is that Norma, her nemesis, is married to a big time like producer at MGM. And that enrages Joan because she's like, the playing field isn't equal. I'm working harder than everyone else, but I can't. I'm not doing that yet. Not yet. <laughs> Joanne, yeah. Yeah. Joan has a lot of affairs <laughs> and a lot of, you know, marriages to mm-hmm. big time people, which we'll get big into. Wigs. 
But she was like, that's not fair. That like, because he was literally like the casting producer of all the films. And like Gross. he was putting his wife in all the roles. Well, I also think like she came from a place where it's like, I went to these boarding schools with all these women and they treated me like shit. So she doesn't have this level of respect. Like mm-hmm. she was taught the negative girl code. Yes. Like we've, but we now deal with the positive girl code where it's like, hey, you do you I and I'll back. do me. And it's like, fine. And mm-hmm. I'll promote you if you need to be promoted. But yo, she's in a place where they're going to fight. This is, there are very few women here, and I will fight you to the death for my spot here. And I will fuck anyone if I need to. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, Joan also knows that Hollywood is an age game. And if they don't make her the lead of movies soon, her time is going to be (gasps) up. Cool. Tick, tick, boom, baby. So she levels the playing field in her own way by talking very loudly around the studio all the time that it's unfair that Norma gets the good roles because of who she's fucking. Hell yeah. <laughs> this Tell starts him, a feud between the two women, the two women, and this mm. would not be the last one Joan was involved in. So this goes on for a few years. And in 1927, Joan finally lands her first lead role. Fun fact, Norma was supposed to star in this movie, but she rejected the role. Probably because it was a little odd. <laughs> So Joan played Manon, the scantily clad assistant to a carnival act, Alonzo, the armless knife thrower. Wow. It was a horror mystery thriller, and there's a twist. Turns out he has arms. He's just hiding them. I know. I'm, I know. I'm not left-handed. He's just <laughs> that good at throwing knife with his feet. Knives with his feet. <laughs> And to Jones, don't judge. I, I actually wrote this film, so I'm calm not down. gonna lie. This movie sounds <laughs> thrilling. If it wasn't silent, I might watch it. Oh, whoa, you um, don't like silent films? I think they're fine, but I think at this point, I also don't like silent films, so don't feel bad. No, I'm I not. Want a, to I'm like not them. an artiste. I'm not an artiste. I'm not Agnes Varda. <laughs> I can't do it. Wow, throwback. So, <laughs> throwback to last week. <laughs> So this is a horror mystery thriller, and Joan is so disappointed because it's not the big breakout role that she thought it was going to be. But it did show people that she could lead in a movie, and people are starting to notice her. So in 1928, she lands another big role in Across to Singapore. But it was her role as Diana Medford in Our Dancing Daughters in 1928 that catapulted her to stardom. This role established her as a symbol of modern 1920s-style femininity. Oh, yeah. She's a big flapper, yeah? Oh, yeah. She rivaled Clara Bow, the original It Girl, and Hollywood's foremost flapper. Clara Bow, who we mentioned in our first fucking episode. And we've never covered. (laughs) (laughs) We never will. Just kidding. I would love to cover her. I don't know fucking anything about her. We'll do it on the last. Oh, (gasps) That's sad to think that there will be a last like episode. Like 30 years from now when we're like weird and wrinkly. Our tits are down to our knees. <laughs> That'll God never willing. happen for me. <laughs> my tits are down to my knees. <laughs> so she is now surpassing Clarebo as the flapper girl. Mm. And after this, she has a steady stream of movies where she is playing a flapper in often like a rags to riches kind of story. She is an idealized version of the free spirited all American girl. F Scott Fitzgerald wrote of her. 
Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper, the girl you see in smart nightclubs, gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide, hurt eyes, young things with a talent for living. It's like, I'm sorry, did Resand write that? Come on. If I was Zelda Fitzgerald, I would fucking I would murder Joan Crawford. <laughs> kill her. Can you believe that? That's what that's what Zelda Fitzgerald is as well. I know. How dare know. he hate his own wife and write that about somebody else? Well, and it's so annoying because it's like Zelda is there and like all the flapper characters are like basically based off of her. So it's like you're I would be like, oh, You're hi, husband. You're praising a copy of a copy of your own wife. Like, how dare you? Real. Good thing you're stealing my lines to write your own goddamn Gadsby book, you piece of shit. I'll, don't worry. I pour gin on his don't grave a lot. Don't worry. Actually, only twice. His grave's in Maryland. You can pour gin on it as much as you want. Yeah. It's around. It's about and around. <laughs> so, but yeah, Joan Crawford is getting this, like, reputation as being a flapper, a young seductress. Like, the girl who is just like the femme fatale of movies. And I really love Joan's quote on her bad girl reputation. And she goes, if you want to see the girl next door, go next door. <laughs> yes! Like She's like, you're not going to find her here. A fucking dream. <gasps> what a quote. And again, I want you to remember, these are all silent films. So she is becoming the it girl in silent films. Why hasn't anyone put that on a tote bag i don't know <laughs> jesus christ so forgive me for saying that go ahead <laughs> these are all silent films because yes. mgm is nervous to get on the talkie bandwagon they avoided it for as long as they could saying it's just a fad people will come back to the silent film soon like when they did not <laughs> So they did start to eventually make the transition, but there were a lot of stars who were very afraid to talk on camera. Some didn't like their voice. Many of the women couldn't actually sing, or I found this very fascinating. They had thick accents because they were Scandinavian. They were from Switzerland or Sweden. Like, I didn't know that, that a lot of them were Scandinavian. Joan, the first time she heard her voice, she goes, that's not me. That must be a man reading my lines. Because <gasps> she has a low voice. Because she has a very low, low, deep voice. And mm. they're like, no, that's you. And she was like, everyone knows the feeling when you hear your voice recorded and you're like, no, thank you. Uh, it's a terrifying feeling. I mean, <laughs> I edit so much of my own voice weekly <laughs> that it doesn't even shock me anymore. Like, I think maybe in the beginning it shocked me, but also like. I actually I have zero reaction now yeah zero reaction that's very impressive I mean I listen to you and obviously myself and obviously like every producer does uh -huh. his like want to go I edit so many things mm -hmm. that my voice is like fine but like you know who I think that about mm -hmm. every time Miley Cyrus opens her mm. mouth I'm like oh my god her voice is so low and then when she sings I'm like what a raspy queen you I know? also Stevie Nicks. She should be Stevie Nicks. I forgot to tell you, like, I don't normally do this, but Beyonce and I watched the Grammys. We watched. Why it. not with me? Why didn't you dress up and do it with me? I'm not driving to Catonsville. I couldn't even. I honestly, I feel really bad about this. I fell asleep before Best Album. <laughs> oh, we all we do that every we week all. time. So anyways, 
Maybe that's what we'll talk about Patreon, the Grammys. Uh, also, I think I need to really start actually making people like do something for the Grammys. Not no the Oscars for the Oscars. Oh, for the oh or the yeah, Grammys. you should host an Oscars party. Yeah, <gasps> because usually Allie, that we would be all so we fun. all rush home. And I then would we, love that. We all get dressed up, and it's just us five, like the five people in my family. Host an Oscar. I'm telling you now. Well, it's I March would, 10th. It's I, Mar- would, I already know what day it is. I would love to dress up for the Oscars. Oh, my God. We're all going to do it. It's time. Have everybody over. Okay. Mom and Dad can leave early if they want. Oscar time. I would love to dress up for the Oscars. Fuck yeah. We're doing an Oscar time. <gasps> yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Anyways. Sorry, well, everybody. It's <laughs> the same as the Super Bowl. So, anyways. You mean better than left less buffalo chicken dip we can alter that <laughs> we can fix that we can have be- meatloaf balls i can fix you <laughs> taylor um, swift will be there anyways. both of them <laughs> for both events can you believe it yes so, back to joan Mm-mm. they're making the switch joan is like i have worked so fucking hard to get here yes yeah, i did. will not be left behind mm. because of my mm. deep voice so she hires a singing coach and a dialogue coach to make sure that when she speaks and sings on camera it is flawless the hollywood review of 1929 was one of the studio's first all talking films and their first attempt to showcase their star's ability to make the transition from silent to sound. She sang the song, Got a Feeling for You, during the film's first act and never looked back at her silent film days. 1929 was also the year she got married to her second, some say first, husband, <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So, Douglas Jr. is an actor and producer who was the son of famed silent film star Douglas Fairbanks who was kind of like an Errol Flynn, big swashbuckling movies. He was in Robin Hood, The Mark of Zorro, and would later become a very well-known producer. So Douglas Jr. and his family were considered Hollywood royalty. Douglas Jr. was 19 when they got married, and Joan was maybe 25 on the high end, 22 on the low end. Whoa! (laughs) We don't know how old she is again. And his father and his stepmother, Mary Pickford, <laughs> very another very famous person we have not done. <gasps> okay. They did not approve of this marriage. Yeah. And some question whether it was young love or she was pulling a Norma Shearer and just trying to get some extra points on the scoreboard. We really don't know. What's that called? A May? What's it called? A May, a oh, May December romance. May December romance. Which is so funny because like, Maybe she was 25 and he was like, it's not even that big of an age gap. But I think like when you're still in the teen era, it feels weird, especially because then you're like, when did they start seeing each other? Yikes. I think it was pretty quick. But either way, 1930 is a big year for her. She made five movies. She starred in three of them. And then in 1931, she stars alongside Clark Gable. Oh my God. The, the boy. Movie, Laughing Sinners. <gasps> which I love the name of that movie, Laughing Sinners. That should be the theme of our Oscars party. And lo and behold, I'm the, writing it down so we don't forget. The two <laughs> start having an affair. No, with Clark Gable. That lasts decades <gasps> on and off. Somebody has to. Somebody's got to do it. It was pretty public. They weren't trying to hide it from the public or their partners. Oh my God. And Douglas dealt with it for a while but he and Joan finally officially divorced in 1933 
Joan is starring in more movies, and in 1935, she marries another actor, Franchot Tone. This marriage also only lasts for a few years, but in this case, children was the issue. Joan and Franchot wanted to start a family, but it only ended with Joan having a lot of miscarriages. No, poor Joan. Joan does not do well with things that are out of her control. I mean, there's really not much she can do about this particular situation. So she slumps into a deep depression over it. And rather than supporting Joan through this trying time, Franchot becomes dependent on alcohol and starts to physically abuse her. The two finally divorce in 1939, and unfortunately, while her personal life is hitting a low point, so is her career. In 1937, so in the midst of her marriage falling apart, she's having a ton of miscarriages, she is proclaimed the queen of movies by Life magazine. She's like, okay, well, that's going well. 1938, she's listed among a few other actors such as Mae West, Greta Garbo, Catherine Hepburn as box office poison. Yikes. So she is in a really dark place right now. I'm like biting my nails. I'm so upset. But after the divorce is finalized, she's like, you know what? I'm not box office poison. I'm in control. Poison. She poison she picks herself (laughs) back up as she always does she makes a comeback in 1939 with her role as homewrecker crystal allen in the women opposite her professional nemesis norma shear she loves doing this she loves starring in films across from her nemeses (laughs) and then she was ready to take back her personal life So in 1940, she adopts a baby girl whom she initially names Joan after herself. Oh, my gosh. But then she remembers that she hates her name, uh, the name that her public (laughs) gave her. So she changes her name to Christine. Now, one thing you need to know is that in California, it was illegal for a single woman to adopt a child. So... Some label this as like her being like a feminist icon of like she was told no and she found a way to do it. But also this meant that she kind of had to go through like a seedier route. (laughs) Many people believe that the place she got Christine was an underground child trafficking (gasps) ring rung out of Las Vegas. It was very, very sketchy. So we'll get more into it in a little bit. But she finally has her baby. And quickly after this, she meets her next husband, Philip Terry, another actor. They are married in 1942. And after just, I mean, they're dating for six months and they get married. It's a very whirlwind romance. Joan wants them to expand their family, but obviously doesn't want to go down the potential miscarriage road again. So she calls in another order from Las Vegas, this time for a boy. (laughs) They get a baby boy, name him Christopher. Then his birth mother comes back to claim him after a few weeks because she was like, I did not actually consent to give my son up for adoption. Oh, my God. So this one they lose, and that kind of hits Joan pretty hard. She's devastated, but they do find another boy. They bring him home and name him Philip Jr. Unfortunately, Joan and Philip split up a few years after in 1946, so she goes, well, I did have a boy named Christopher, but then he got taken away by his mother. So they'll, I'll just name this one Christopher, too. So now we have Christine and Christopher, and she's single again. <laughs> so 
After 18 years, her contract with MGM is terminated by mutual consent on June 29th, 1943. In lieu of the last film remaining under her contract, MGM bought her out for $100,000. Then for $500,000, she signed with Warner Brothers for a three-movie deal. Her first film for the studio was Hollywood Canteen in 1944. This is an all-star morale booster film that uh, teamed her up with several other top movie stars of the time. Then the next year, a role comes along that she knows she's made for. The title role in a movie called Mildred Pierce. This is a noir, melodrama, and she is like, this is a meaty fucking role that I was born to play. The director did not want to put Joan in this movie. He's like, your shoulders are too broad. (gasps) No, thanks. How dare he? I want Barbara Stanwyck. But she demands the role. And she gets it. What are Barbara's shoulders like? Do we know? Who knows? But I'm wondering, too, if MG or sorry, Warner Brothers was like, we just spent $500,000 getting her. (laughs) You're like, you will put her in this movie. Right. Why not? So she gets the role. The director and her have a terrible time filming it. They are fighting all the time. They hate each other. It is a huge hit. It receives receives <laughs> widespread critical and commercial success. It's nominated for five Oscars, and Joan ends up winning for Best Actress. Hell yes. She's back in the biz. She's divorced again. So she decides to celebrate by adopting married? more children. Oh, no. <laughs> Joan, less babies, more. This time, twins. (gasps) She got these two from the Tennessee Children's Home Society. This has absolutely been proven to be a horrendous child kidnapping and trafficking scam. Oh, my God. So the other ones are suspected. This one is proven. This woman, Georgia Tan, who I actually would love to cover on the podcast because she's insane. Georgia Tan. She would do fucked up things. Like, she would go to hospitals. Stop. Tell the mother. She is like, oh, your baby just needs to go in for a quick medical treatment. I'll be right back with them. She would leave the hospital with the baby. She would just steal the babies. She was stealing babies left and right. She would take babies from playgrounds. Like, this woman is a nightmare. And while in her care... There were reports of neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, murder. No, no. So this is where the twins came from. Upsetting. I, again, we can't get into it because Georgia Tan, she needs her own episode. This is a separate thing. It's a whole separate thing. But this is where the twins come from. I need you to know them. So back to her career. (laughs) (laughs) After the completion of the film, This Woman is Dangerous, in 1952, she is asked to be released, or she asked to be released from her Warner Brothers contract. Mm. Later that year, she receives her third Academy Award nomination for Best Actress uh, for Sudden Fear, um, and she just continues to work steadily. Joan then marries her fourth and final husband, Alfred Steele, at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas on May 10th, 1955. And he is not an actor. He was actually the president and chairman of the board at PepsiCo. (laughs) So this is rather a different flavor than her typical husband. (laughs) But just a few years later, on April 10th, 1959, he had a heart attack while going down a set of stairs, fell down the stairs, and died. Did she push him? 
one person thinks she did, but we'll get into that. <laughs> so just, it just made, <laughs> on the surface, like from what a lot of people said, like this was devastating. Like she actually really loved him. And a lot of people say it was because this man, when you look at pictures of him, he is not very like conventionally attractive. He's a normie. He's just like a normal person who like, I think actually loved Joan for who she was. And I think Joan loved him and loved that he wasn't in Hollywood. He was a businessman that like didn't need her to be Joan Crawford. She could be Lucille Sore. Mm. You know, like I just, I don't know. This was one of the few ones where like it was hard to get information on, but it seemed like this was a very genuine relationship. So after his death, she goes to PepsiCo and is like, cool. So I guess that makes me chairman of the board now. And they said, you don't work here. <laughs> this is not a monarchy. You don't just get your husband's job after he dies. And she said, I think I do. So she did. And Joan remained chairman <laughs> of the board of PepsiCo for the next 15 years. <laughs> no way. Shut up. And she becomes, like, the brand ambassador, like, trying to, like, hawk Pepsi anytime she can. And in 1963, she received the sixth annual Pally Award, which was in the shape of a bronze Pepsi bottle. It was awarded to the employee making the most significant contribution to Pepsi. <laughs> God damn it, Joan. In 1973, she finally retired from Pepsi, uh... On her maybe age of 65. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1962, she got a script for a movie that would truly cement her legacy in Hollywood. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Mm. The film focuses on the relationship between two aging sisters. So there's Baby Jane, who was a spoiled child star who kind of like shot to fame when she was a kid and then her star quickly faded mm -hmm. and her sister Blanche who found success when she was a little bit older, but was paralyzed in an accident, leaving her in a wheelchair to be cared for by her sister who was now absolutely psychotic. The classic thriller was so perfect for Joan. She said, you know who should star in this movie with me? My other Hollywood nemesis rival, Betty Davis. <laughs> so this is a legendary feud that has apparently been simmering since 1933. And we did Betty Davis. We did. Did we? Maybe. I can't remember. It's so much. I know. So this has been simmering since 1933 when Joan's divorce announcement overshadowed the release of one of Betty's films. Then Joan married Francho Tone, who apparently Betty was in love with. Oh, my God. And then Joan mocked Betty's dress at the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the studios had wanted the two to team up for quite some time because it would be good press. And this movie was the perfect opportunity. And I will say Betty Davis in this movie, she is listed as one of the most iconic villains of all time because she is with this all white makeup and like heavy eyeliner and a big like you know drawn on like Cindy Crawford like mole Hell on her yeah. face. Like, she is so scary in this role. It's like if Grey Gardens was two sisters and they were actually trying to like kill each other. Murder each other. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So this film because of the two stars because of the excellent writing and filmography is a mega hit and there are tales of like you know 
Betty Davis like being like you know in a scene where Joan where she's supposed to pretend kick her and she like actually kicks her and then you know like there's a lot of bullshit on camera but either way it's a huge hit it had a budget of $980,000 it made its money back in 11 days and eventually went on to make nine million dollars shit it catapulted Betty and Joan into megastardom again (laughs) but there was one more gripe to be had when it came time for the Academy Awards, Betty was nominated. Joan was not. No. But did she put her film in? I'm guessing so. You have to apply. Have That's to apply. one of the things. You have to apply. Joan was obviously pissed. So she decided that she was going to get on that stage, whether they called her name or not. Connie jo- West. Not in a little more official way than that. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so for some reason that year, there were a few actresses who couldn't make it to the Academy Awards. They couldn't leave New York. So jo- Joan contacted all of them and said, hey, if you win, I'll go up and accept your award on your behalf. And the actresses said, great, like, thank you so much. Some of them were in the same category as Betty for Best <laughs> Actress. And sure enough, Anne Bancroft won, beating out Betty Davis. So Joan got to go up on stage and graciously thank the Academy right in front of Betty. (laughs) And then afterwards, she made sure she got a lot of pictures with her Friends Award. (laughs) (laughs) With her fake Oscar. How fun. Over the next few years, she made more films. She guest starred on The Lucy Show with Lucille Ball. She published her autobiography, A Portrait of Joan, co-written with Jane Kessner Ardmore in 1962. And then she wrote her next book, My Way of Life, in 1971. And people were really excited for a racy tell-all because they're like, she has slept with so many people. She has had so many feuds. But they were sorely disappointed because it was mainly a compilation of meticulous advice on grooming, wardrobe, exercise, and even food storage. Whoa, Joan? Joan Crawford's last official public appearance was on April 8th, 1973 at Town Hall in Manhattan, New York. She appeared as the fourth legend in John Springer's Legendary Ladies series. The event was sold out with a 1,500-seat venue filled to capacity. The audience watched a series of highlight scenes from Crawford's screen career. Afterwards, she came up on stage for a question-and-answer session with the audience. And upon her departure, approximately 200 fans surrounded her limousine and would not let it move for several minutes. Like, this is a very emotional moment for Joan, too, because, like, she, like, gets up and, like, these people are just applauding her for her contributions to film. And it's just, like, it's very emotional. But then she, I, I think it maybe was this event or an event around this time period, she saw a picture of herself in the paper and she was like, that's not how I want to go out. So she stayed in isolation in her apartment in New York for the next couple of years. Oh, it's okay to look old, Joan. No. And she ended up dying from a heart attack. Um, some reports said cancer. Um, but either way, she died on May 10th, 1977. Her age was reported to be 69. But Joan's story was not over yet. People were shocked when her will was read, and she bequeathed her two youngest children, Cindy and Kathy, with $77,500 each from her $2 million estate. She explicitly disinherited the two eldest, Christina and Christopher. 
with the quote, it is my intention to make no provision herein, herein for my son Christopher or my daughter Christina for reasons which are well known to them. Wow. Shade has been thrown. Mm-hmm. She's dealing her cards publicly now. Yeah. So both of them challenged the will and did eventually receive $55,000 as a settlement. Oh, um, and that's like nothing. Who cares? I know. And the rest of her money. <laughs> to people in this like business yes (laughs) um but the rest of her money went to the various charities that she supported people were a little confused about what happened between the mother and her two oldest children but got some answers a year later in november 1978 christina crawford published mommy dearest which contained allegations that her late mother was an emotionally and physically abusive person to Christina and her brother, Christopher, because she chose fame and her career over parenthood. In the book, Christina claims that her mother was an alcoholic who would beat them with wire hangers. And on Christmas, she would make them pose with a big pile of Christmas presents, but then they were only allowed to pick one, and then the rest would go to charity. I mean, that just more sounds like a sensible choice, but I don't know. But then she would wake them up in the middle of the night and force them to clean the house from top to bottom. And she would starve them if they complained about the food that they were served. Didn't they have a maid? They did. And that was also why, like, the kids were like, well, there's a maid here. Like, why would we clean? Christina also. Re- <laughs> also, that sounds spoiled. <laughs> we'll as talk about too. <laughs> that. Christina also recorded that her mother had many affairs with men and women. And then she talks about an incident in 1968 where. She was set to star in this soap opera. Her ovary ruptured. She had to have emergency surgery. And her mother swooped in and stole her spot in the soap opera, playing her 28-year-old character, even though she was in her 60s. Now, later, the director was like, well, we needed someone to fill the spot. And Joan offered because she wanted Christina to eventually come back and do it. Like, she was like, yes, she was saving her role, not taking it over you know because if we put another 28 year old we couldn't exactly switch her out her out yeah i don't like i'm just doing what i have to do to save my daughter's life or the career i know and then she made the bold claim that joan was responsible with the for the death of her fourth husband saying like yes he had a heart attack but joan pushed him down the stairs Hmm. now this book has long been disputed and called into question Betty Davis, longtime rival of Joan Crawford, denounced the book, stating, I was not Miss Crawford's biggest fan, but wisecracks to the contrary. I did and still do respect her talent. What she did not deserve was that detestable book written by her daughter. I've forgotten her name. Horrible. Whoa. Liz Smith, writing in The Baltimore Sun, said, I was inclined to believe Joan was misguided in her attempts to mold her children and was vain and self-absorbed like most movie stars, but the stories of beatings and near madness were over the top. Even Christina's, so this is Christina, the person writing the book, Joan's daughter, her husband, producer Harvey Medlinsky, said in response to his wife's book, I have only good things to say about Joan Crawford. She was always nice to me and Christina. Come on. What a bad husband at that point. 
so some people were like, yeah, I thought she was like a bit too strict, but I thought she was too strict and things were like, yeah, the timeouts were a little too long. And like she would be like, you're not going to your best friend's birthday party because you were bad, you know, and like some people point out that like maybe she wasn't trying to be abusive, but she didn't want her kids to grow up as spoiled Hollywood brats. Mm. So it's like she thinks like waking you up in the middle of the night and making you clean the house. Or was it just like having you do chores to like keep you humble you know because well I mean I've had parents like as a teacher I've had parents that are like a little over the top where Mm -hmm. they will show up to homeroom and be like you didn't make your bed I'm gonna take you home and bring you back so like there is shit like that that happens where it's like you have a responsibility and if you don't fulfill that responsibility Mm -hmm. so I could see how she might wake them up and be like hey you were supposed to clean up the table for dinner and you didn't come downstairs and clean up the table yeah and like the gift thing I could also kind of see about like we have so much money like yes like this is a big pile of gifts but like you get one and then we distribute the rest to like kids in need like pick what you want right and like this is what's so fucking hard about this story because Christopher is on Christina's team he's like yes our mother was abusive I hated being there but the younger twins Cindy and Kathy have stated many times that they did not witness or experience any of the events described in the book. And they said, yeah, she was tough and she was a disciplinarian, but nothing like how Christina portrayed it. And they even sued Tina in 1998 because she had claimed in her book also that the twins weren't biologically twins. (laughs) Now, we know that they did come from sketchy circumstances, But this is like a weird claim and they were actually able to track down their birth certificates and prove that they were biologically twins. And I think this lawsuit may have been more of a stunt to be like, this is something we can prove that she lied about. So like we're defending our mother's character by like proving what we can. Now, I truly don't know what to think about this whole thing. We know that children in the same family can remember events very differently and can be treated very differently yes and the twins were the youngest like they came by many years after christine and christopher so maybe a large portion of this was happening before they could remember i'm not saying that the allegations that christina is making are like totally falsified Mm -hmm. i don't think that they are i think that christina and christopher felt like they were mistreated in their youth sure i don't want to take that away from them but i also don't want to make these wild accusations that Joan was explicitly physically abusing them. I don't know. It's so hard to draw the line because it's not like there's like a couple people that were like, Joan would never do this. There is an outpouring of support that like Joan didn't do this. And then there's a couple people saying that she did. So I, I don't know what to believe. It's so hard because they published it after she died or Christina published it after she died. So there is no chance for defense. And we just don't have the proof that we have today of like Uh incidences like that. Um, And I think a lot of times maybe like a small incident can leave a bigger traumatic scar. So she's maybe Christina is writing about the traumatic scar and not the initial incident. Right. And I do believe that, again, it's like, I believe that, like, it was traumatic for Christina and Christopher to grow up with Joan Crawford as their mother. Yeah. Like, that is difficult. And also, I think that Joan grew up 
being like, yeah, like I had to grow up tough. So like, I don't want you to be a spoiled brat. So like, I am going to make you do things differently than like your other Hollywood kid counterparts. Also, we've also seen Joan Crawford in this story be a little bit of like a heinous bitch towards people. So like, I don't think it's way out of left field for her to be like a cranky bitch to her kids. (laughs) But like at the same time, believe it. Does that make you abusive or does it make you like hard to get along with? I know. There's a big difference. There's a fine line, actually. There's not a big difference. There is a fine line. I know. And that's what we're walking here. Yeah. And, like, so do I believe that, like, Christine and Christopher, like, felt neglected? Like, I do believe that, that they felt that, especially because they were the first couple ones, and she was going through a lot of divorces. So, like, she was probably really fucking angry. Yeah. In those first couple years. So, I don't know. But what really cemented this book and this story into pop culture was the 1981 movie Mommy Dearest starring Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford. The film received mixed reviews but always like always leaning towards bad but always positive for Faye Dunaway's portrayal of Joan. This movie even won the Golden Raspberry for the worst film that year. But because of the media around the book and the film, Mobby Dearest is now forever a noun referencing a controlling, crazed mother. Mm. Uh, in fact, I used it a couple of weeks ago because I went, I go into people's houses for a living and there was definitely like a Mommy Dearest situation where like the kid was parroting the mother screaming at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I before I even knew I was doing this story, I used that as a noun. <laughs> so anyways. People are still fascinated by Mommy Dearest. And in 2017, Christina worked with lyricist and composer David Nels on a stage musical adaptation of Mommy Dearest, which was produced by Out of the Box Theatrics in New York City. (laughs) Which is another, like, interesting thing, because apparently she hated the film and then, like, I guess tried to, like, take back the story on Broadway. And this would not be the only scandalous part of Joan's life to be brought to book and screen. The alleged feud between Crawford and Betty Davis is depicted in the 1989 book, Betty and Joan, The Divine Feud. Then the the rivalry was later the subject of the 2017 TV series, Feud, Betty and Joan, with Jessica Lange as Crawford and Susan Sarandon as Davis. Fantastic casting. Mm. This is a hard end to the story of Joan's life because although so much has been made of it, you really don't know who she is at the end. And you can read her story one of two ways. You can read that she was trying to like be a good mom and not have her kids be spoiled and then gave her money to charity. Or you can read her as a total heinous bitch. She was like really out to like make her way for herself. And I think that, both can be true Mm. and I think both are true in this sense and maybe that's what she wanted was to be the bitch and the Madonna like all in this like you know what I'm saying like being both in the same body and I'll leave on one of her quotes which I think kind of sums her up pretty well love is a fire but whether it's going to warm your hearth or burn down your house, you never can tell. Mm. Ain't that the truth about fire? Yeah. Wow. And yeah, that is the, like, I, this was already a nine page story 
and I wanted to get more into the feud between her and Betty and more into these. But like I li- like there's so much that like I literally couldn't. Sometimes you can't with lives like that and with yeah. fame like that. She just yeah. like, glowed so bright for uh-huh. such a long period of time. Well, and again, it's like the Annie biography um, documentary was like, these are totally crazy. She never did any of that. Well, that's which not I fair. Was like, that's not fair. Which was also like, I don't believe that like, she didn't do fucked up things to like her kids. Cause like most parents do. Right. Of course and we all do. I also like, don't really subscribe to the, you know, other podcast coverage where it was like, she's a monster. She did every single thing that Christina said. I don't right. know if that's no. also true. So I don't know. That's Joan. And it's such a complicated, Ooh, messy story. God fun. And I hope that I told it in a cohesive way. That was so cohesive. (laughs) I loved it. I could follow every every line. Okay. So now we need to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. So these two are pretty interesting together. (laughs) I think that they are both destined for stardom, but they are also uh, going after it relentlessly. And almost like cursed by it too, like mm-hmm. um, specifically Joan. Like they have a very like rags to riches like beginning story. They're in a weird family with weird things, but they're gonna break out and make something happen. And that's the thing; they both made things happen for themselves. Oh yeah, I wrote <laughs> screamed and ran away to the big city. <laughs> applied to both of them. And they're entering contests just to survive. Like, Miss Piggy's entering beauty contests. Joan is entering dance Dance contests. camp, yeah. Like, literally, like, they're like, that's how I'm going to make it out of my current situation. Well, they're hustlers, both of them, through and through. Like, yeah. I'm a hustler. I'm going to make myself a name. Yeah. And I'm going to care about my looks and my beauty. And I'm going to scream at anyone who is going to waste that like I, I kind of love that Joan was like MGM is wasting my youth and my beauty like by not putting me in leading roles right now and I feel like Miss Biggie would say the same thing yeah because also Joan is like hanging out in the background of these silent films that you can see everywhere and she's like no I'm absolutely not going to be in the background yeah and that happened to Miss Piggy she mm-hmm. it was a no a nothing puppet it didn't matter she didn't matter she was a chorus character mm-hmm. but she made herself known. Yeah. Somehow, somewhere, <laughs> this pig, like, shines. I <laughs> and I do feel like they're, like, they're both, like, transforming while maintaining the same talent. Like, they're both just, like, working so consistent. Like, people said of Joan, they were like, if she liked the movie, she would do it. Like, especially, like, once she got established. They're like, it didn't matter whether she was supporting or not or, like, co-starring or not. Like, she loved just working and doing films and I feel like that's also Miss Piggy just hustling and doing what she can and just the big Hollywood star Mm -hmm. vibes both of them like I mean Joan was a part of MGM which is if that's not big Hollywood star vibes then what is you Mm -hmm. know what I mean and like Miss Piggy is part of the two biggest franchises of like the day you know the Muppets and Disney like yeah she is really put they're both really putting it on and respected and loved and hated by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I also think love plays a very interesting part in both of their stories because 
Miss Piggy has one great love. Mm. Well, actually, no, I would say she has two. She has Kermit and herself. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that herself is a great love, and I don't think she would deny that. Well, I think that that's Joan's biggest love, and that might be, like, the real world problem with that. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like, it can either warm, <laughs> it's like Joan said, it can either warm your hearth or, or burn, burn your, your fucking house, house down. down. Yeah. And I, and for Miss Piggy, I think it warmed her hearth. I think she's like, I love myself and I'm going to let that love fuel my relationship with Kermit rather than letting it burn everything down. And I think for Joan, her love for herself absolutely destroyed her home life. And that makes me very sad because I find them to be so similar in their work ethic and their longevity and their talent. But I think that at the end, Joan let the love destroy her and Miss Piggy let it just like, I don't know. Fuel her. Fuel her. Yeah, exactly. I also think that, and we've done this before with fictional characters and non-fictional characters, that there is a place where we have to draw the line that this is where a fictional Hollywood star with one love that's the dream, right? That's the yeah. dream. That's what Joan wanted, mm-hmm. you know, in the long run. But that's not the reality of how life works. Like, when you have that much fame, when you have to do all these roles, like, your story gets written differently in real life because you aren't just a character. You're a person. That's such a good point because, like, this picking and Kermit can make it because other people are writing it to change with the times and say that they could make it which mm-hmm. is easier when like i hate to admit it but like they don't have real feelings <laughs> <laughs> and they're fake joan is a real person right the people she married they're real people her kids are real people these are human beings experiencing the machine that is hollywood and some saying like the twins are like fine for me like (laughs) i love my childhood and then like the two other kids are like it was not fine for us like we did not enjoy it and i just i think that it it really is a good stark reminder of the difference between when hollywood has the opportunity to write a decades-long love story and the realities of decades-long love stories because like really like Joan didn't I think Joan just wanted to be loved and I think that's why she adopted so many kids and as you know from having kids it's like having kids to have someone to like unconditionally love you is not real no no (laughs) kids are the worst and they you know not the worst you know again but it's like they're the most honest with you but they're the most honest and like I think that a lot of people think like, oh, well, I'll have a kid because like they'll have to love me. It's like kids don't owe you fucking anything. No. You owe them everything. Exactly. And like they could hate you just as easily as the person selling your movie ticket at the AMC. Like it's just you. They don't owe you fucking anything. Well, and I I also think that Hollywood does this beautiful thing where we have like mickey and minnie Mm. and daisy and donald and piggy and kermit where it's like they're always in the honeymoon phase because they're never actually together yeah none of them have children none of them have a marriage it just is that they exist and it's like it's easier that way sure but 
that's because you never hit the happily ever after. Yeah. None of us are ever looking at the aftermath because that's the hardest part. Yeah. And we have to see that with Joan. Like the hardest part is, yeah, she went to Hollywood. She fought. She did the Miss Piggy thing. She got famous. She went to the Oscars. But she also has to live the rest of her life. Yeah. And that's where you have to lay shit down on a track. And it's hard. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Joan is the reality of what Miss Piggy's life might be like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It is sad. All right. Well. Are you ready to toast these women? I am. I'm so ready. Okay. Who would you like to toast this evening? So tonight, I want to toast all the millennial women that grew up on Miss Piggy. I think we did a good job. I think we did, too. I I think we took her note and we ran with it. So, like, (laughs) cheers to, like, loving yourself. (laughs) I'm going to toast the women we still fucking talk about today. (laughs) Joan Crawford is someone who I don't think will ever stop talking about because she left herself such a mystery. And I think that that is very interesting and hard to do. Perfect. (laughs) Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So much. (laughs) But also so little. Like, all I'm doing is listening to podcasts, listening to books. But it's all things that I've loved, you know, previously. Yeah. Um, I will say there's this book series that I really liked um I let me look up the name real quick because it was right before winter break that I was reading it so like winter break like December Mm -hmm. so this is a romance series I was a long time ago so the first one is called terms and conditions by Lauren Asher and it is the story as if Walt Disney died and his grandchildren have to take over the magical kingdom. Huh. And they're kind of jaded. Yeah. All these boys that he has like three grandsons that are all jaded. And in his will, the Walt Disney character gives all of these grandsons something they have to do to inherit the money. Okay. And it's a three book series about all three of these boys attempting to like obviously the romance novels but like attempting to do the thing that their grandfather wanted them to do in order to get money but of course they're finding themselves along the Ah! way (laughs) it's so cute like I went into it like not knowing what it was going to be and I immediately was like oh my god this is Walt Disney World and I will absolutely read all of this this is so interesting too because it also kind of feels like a weird Charlie and the Chocolate Factory situation yeah (laughs) it's like to inherit this factory you have to prove yourself right able to land a check exactly yeah (laughs) and like only one of them had to do with a marriage vow the rest of them were like you know what like you gave up art in high school for a business degree like i want you to go back and work for the art department and then meets like a zanny girl like zany little girl zanny Zanny. that made it sound like she was on xana also maybe (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's like stuff like that where it's like they really had to like dig into like their grandfather was like so cool anyway it was a really fun book series that like i love stupid romance novels where you Uh, know the end is them getting together that's the whole point but it's fun i like i like seeing how creative these authors can get along the way i know because like can you shock me yeah (laughs) (laughs) at this point i've read enough books that maybe not okay go ahead i can't remember if i've already promoted this or not but i'm gonna promote the morning show so we just finished the most recent season 
It's on Apple TV Plus. It's so good. It's so good. And so the first season is basically Matt the fictionalized Lauer. version of Matt Lauer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it is what happens when like this beloved morning show person is revealed to be like a sexual predator. And they even had like the button under the desk mm-hmm. that Matt Lauer is so crazy. And I think that it like the like the last season got a little wacky <laughs> and a little reaching for straws in my opinion. Um, a little dramatic. But I think that the first couple seasons, especially because season was like two or three, I can't remember at this point, takes place during COVID. And it was like so uh, I don't know, weird to see them being like, Oh yeah, there's this thing going on in like, you know, China and then like some person being like, I think we should take this seriously and then everybody's been like, nah, it's fine. <laughs> and it's feels to me like kind of like a microcosm of like what we felt about like men taking advantage of women in Hollywood of mm. like people being like I think something like fucked up is going on here and people just be like, now it's fine. Like, and like, no, it's actually like a huge problem. It's going to change the world. Right. Um, but yeah, but I think that Jennifer Aniston is so good in it. Reese Witherspoon. Fantastic. So great. I just, and like, and Steve Carell, this was a big leap for him to play. The the bad guy. Bad guy. And he does it so well because, like, you really believe him that he's like, I'm not doing anything wrong. And you're like, but you are. (laughs) It's such a nuanced look at it, I think. And I just loved it. I thought it was so good. So The Morning Show, I think it's a great, interesting, dramatic TV show. Yeah, what a great promo. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. I know this is a long episode, but I hope it was well worth it. You can find us any and everywhere. On Instagram and X and Facebook and LinkedIn. And, you know, you can join us on Tipsy Tuesdays and vote for who you think made each cocktail. And you can find us on Patreon Mm -hmm. for a dollar a month to help us out with all this cocktail ingredients. Yes, because it does get expensive. Sure does. (laughs) Uh, and if you don't want to contribute on Patreon, you can just rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the absolute world to us. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Mm. And we hope to see you next week. And we hope that you never forget that well-behaved women are so quiet in terms of show business. Oh, yeah. And they really make history. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.